Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. The threat of cyber attacks is on the minds of a lot of people these days, from politicians to CEOs to small business owners. Everyone seems to be on high alert and with good reason. Now, more than ever, companies and organizations need to think about cybersecurity. So we wanted to check in with our own Tahir Algamel, the cryptographer and the father of SSL, who is also Salesforce's CTO of security. Tahir and I will catch up a little bit and then rerun our conversation from last summer. And it's a chance to celebrate Tahir's recent election to the National Academy of Engineering, something that we're all very proud of here at Salesforce. So let's get into it and hear my conversation with Tahir Algamel, Salesforce's CTO of security. Tahir, welcome back to Blazing Trails. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back. Congratulations on being elected to the National Academy of Engineering. What a huge honor. Tell me a little bit about that. Did you get the call, like the Nobel four o'clock in the morning call? Tell me a little bit more about the organization. I got an email at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the advantage is emails don't wake you up. <laughs> Wonderful. They actually sent me an email, yes. Well, that's great. And I had no idea before. It just came. Oh, it's great. Well, it's a huge honor for you and for, for Salesforce. Uh, so we're super excited. And, you know, we also wanted to take this opportunity yeah. to reconnect as there's so much happening in the world right now around security generally and cybersecurity specifically, and just wanted to get some of your thoughts about what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. Are we seeing big changes with what's happening in the world or are things kind of staying the same? What's going on out there? So, so obviously there's an increased sort of urgency when, when people talk about cybersecurity these days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, different organizations deal with, with cybersecurity in, in, different, in different ways. You know, for a company like Salesforce, security is, is already at the top of our priorities. So, so the reality is we've always known there are threats and threats of several different types. And we built our security program to address the different threats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, and are you seeing out there in the, in the community with your colleagues, are you seeing any changes in how people are thinking about it or uh, what, what's the reaction in the community right now? You know, sometimes people wake up a little bit. So, so for organizations that, you know, do not put security at the top of their priorities, uh, you know, I would tell them, hey, you know, take a look at your priorities in terms of securing the organization, the enterprise. And, you know, that maps into most of the time blocking and tackling into, you know, just catching the important things about, about cybersecurity. You know, are you patching your infrastructure well? Have you upgraded from using passwords to using multi-factor authentication? That the basics are actually the most important thing. Do you know how to collect logs to, you know, detect things? Mm -hmm. it, it turns out that the basic things about managing security in an enterprise is the most important thing. Always been and always will be, because that's how, you know, that the attackers find ways into an organization. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just like so many things. If you get the fundamentals right, then you know, right. the right. rest of it takes care of itself. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. 
I would love to hear about growing up in Cairo and when you first fell in love with math. Yeah, so, you know, I fell in love with numbers before I fell in love with mm -hmm. math. My father was a high-level official in the Egyptian government for quite a long time. He actually ran the health department for mm -hmm. the country for several years. And he was difficult to find, but that's the case for all busy fathers. But I actually fell in love with numbers first. My parents tell me, I don't actually recall that myself, but my parents told me that when I was like four or five years old, I picked up the Cairo phone book mm -hmm. and added all the phone numbers together. <laughs> and if you know anything about Cairo, it's not a small city. There's quite a few phone numbers in that thing. Right. And then apparently I did some statistical analysis of why there were more eights than nines or something crazy like this. Wow. So numbers were kind of very therapeutic for me. And, you know, when I grew up, I kind of analyzed it as numbers never change their mind, actually. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People, on the other hand, you know, change their mind all the time, every second uh, sometimes. And, you know, when I went through school and college and so on, it was obvious that math was my favorite subject. When people asked me what was your favorite subject at school, it was actually algebra. Mm -hmm. There are very few people that have that answer to that question. <laughs> right. But algebra, I found algebra to be wonderful. And just to get back to that topic, and that led you to Silicon Valley and to Stanford in the early 80s, in the early days of computing. And I would love to hear about some of that history at your time getting your PhD at Stanford and what it was like in the Valley in those days. Oh, it was a wonderful thing. I mean, I came in 79 and I came to get a PhD and I, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what topic it was going to be. And I sort of, and I kind of found, you know, Martin Hellman, who's the person who was invented public key cryptography out of all subjects. And we chatted and I kind of liked the subject, but I was studying my favorite topic, which is actually in mathematics called number theory. So, you know, with the help from Martin Hellman, I was able to study cryptography and, and write a thesis that became famous and graduate and, you know, build a career in cybersecurity. But the Silicon Valley was very different 40 years ago. It was full of fruit orchards. <laughs> you don't see fruit orchards anymore. There were like Stanford and Hewlett Packard, the National Semiconductor, and that was it. Apple was barely starting and... It, it was very different. The, the whole Silicon Valley was basically centered around Stanford, which is a, a good thing for me at the time. And could you feel at the time that the Valley was on the precipice of something big happening? Or was that later when that feeling came? You know, I remember a conversation I had with my boss at Hewlett Packard. So my first job right out of school when I finished my PhD was at mm -hmm. Hewlett Packard Labs in Palo Alto here, right across the street from Stanford. So it was kind of the same neighborhood. And I had a conversation with my boss at, at that point. So that's 40 years back. And I told him, hey, look, I think the internet is going to take over the world. And we were connected. The internet existed, by the way, at the time. There was no web or HTTP or any other stuff mm -hmm. that we take for granted these days. But we were connected. We sent emails and, and you know, we understood what, connectivity meant. And he reminded me after 
the IPO of Netscape in, in the mid-90s, he actually called me and said, you know, <laughs> you were right 15 years ago or whenever it was. I remember that. He said he remembered that conversation, which is kind of hilarious, actually. Well, it took a little while to get there, and you were right at the center of it, working at Netscape in the early days of uh, the dot-com era, and that's where you developed SSL, and you have this wonderful moniker of the father of SSL. So tell us about that a little bit, those days at Netscape and developing that. I do not actually know who invented that father of SSL thing. It just sits yeah. on the web for some reason. Uh, I recall that. But, you know, you're saying it took a while for us to get here. Actually, if you look at the, the, the base of change in the society, and I mean the global society, it's the fastest change ever. Mm -hmm. In 25 years, we live in a completely mm -hmm. different world from just 25 years ago. We take all of these connectivity things for granted. SSL played the central role in securing things, which is sort mm -hmm. of you know fun to see. You work on things because you feel good at the time and you do, you, you're never going to be able to predict that there's going to be billions of copies of something that you worked on being used in every single machine wow. in the world, which is kind of yeah. funny. It is true today. And this father thing, although he was not, I, I did not call my th my, myself <laughs> father of SSL. I have two yeah. kids that my wife and I love. Not including SSL. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not including SSL, uh, but I think that the reason that it was named that because they actually sort of nurtured SSL until right. it became a standard. I didn't just write something or you know write a paper or a patent. Although I, we did write the patent at the time at Netscape, and you know we had a whole team that built the real detailed protocol mm -hmm. spec and took it to the world and. You know, but I actually took it to the IETF and made sure it became an industry standard. And we convinced Microsoft that it was the right thing to do to agree on a single protocol mm -hmm. rather than build multiple ones. And it, it just became what it mm -hmm. is today. You know, I'm curious if that process is similar now of developing a protocols. At the time, it seemed like there was such a spirit of everybody was in trying to grow the internet. Everybody had a view into what the potential was and, and maybe there was more collaboration. Would it be the same process to develop a new protocol now as it was back then? Actually, it's, it feels like not exactly what you're saying because even back then, there were other protocols mm -hmm. that people were working on that even the ITF itself was mm -hmm. trying to standardize. But people were still building and shipping things with their own proprietary mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, if you look at the payments industry, for example, which obviously we did e-commerce in the early Netscape days. That was mm -hmm. sort of the number one goal. That was the target. The payment industry has so many protocols. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. The only thing that, that even the payment industry agreed on is to use SSL for mm -hmm. internet payments. It's the only one thing that the entire payment industry ever agreed on, which, which you know, it was because it was available, it was there, it was in all browsers and all servers, and because it was the one standard everybody implemented, it, and it was interoperable and it was easy to use. But there has always been the desire to build proprietary right. things for control. And I don't think that was different yeah. back then from now, actually. 
I think there's, there's, there has been, even back then, a desire to build a proprietary thing because you, you think you're going to control mm -hmm. an, an ecosystem. But clearly, controlling billions and billions of machines talking to each other with security built in would not be done by any one entity. There's just no way. It doesn't matter how big the entity yeah, I mean, is. So I think, I think now we recognize the value of, of the collaborative effort. And, you know, people still remember. Yeah, the open standards really opened up that whole opportunity. And since then, you've been involved with securing global networks at scale for many years now. And you're leading that effort uh, along with Jim Alcove here at Salesforce. What do you see the challenges ahead in the, in the security space? So, so, you know, there are some dirty secrets in this, the answer to this. In the early days, we looked at how do we use this internet? It's an open network. How do you use it to do e-commerce? And e-commerce to us was conduct a transaction over this open network. You know, what does that mean? Because an open network means that anybody can see everything or people can even modify things mm -hmm. if they can't see them. So we said, you know, we have to hide these transactions from the open network. That's where the SSL idea came from. It was a company effort. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what happened after this, you know, SSL became a standard and successful, and the world believed that we solved security. Security is done, let's build e-commerce, and they just moved on. And we did not, at the time, you know, analyze threats that might be coming afterwards very well. So we analyzed a particular number of threats that have to do with an open network, and, you know, we'll let the, the business grow. And then a few years later, you discover that, you know, people are attacking the corporate network. So you can get people's transactions mm -hmm. sitting in databases. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with the open network. They did not actually attack SSL itself. Right. They attacked something else. And then they got innovative. I do not know exactly who came up with the ransomware mm -hmm. idea. It's mm -hmm. pretty innovative. You know, you go, you, you just get a hold of some machine or some group of machines and you, you know, you tell the owner, you know, pay me a dollar and I'll give mm -hmm. it back to you sort of thing. So the attacks, the threats grew out of proportion faster than the controls could be done. Yeah. I just saw a headline today. The G7 meeting is today and that, you know, it used to be nuclear security that was the topic of conversation, and now it's cybersecurity. How should senior leaders be thinking about these security issues and, and, and communicating uh, with their teams about that? So, you know, there is the good, there is the bad, and there is the ugly. The good is everybody's realizing the nature of the threats. Now they're becoming infrastructure. The bad is companies and you know agencies and entities are coming up to speed on how do i protect myself as a business or as an agency so each entity is building knowledge about how do you, how do i protect myself the ugly is we forget that it's actually a global issue this is not a company issue it's a global issue and we will not be able to solve this until we cooperate there has to be a level of collaboration between entities globally for us to make this new ecosystem 
risk level sort of correspond to the risk level of the normal human being life that we're used to for the last you know million years or whenever mm -hmm, human mm -hmm. race started. The problem with the high connectivity is that it is making the risk much higher percentage-wise and a lot closer. You know, in the old days, to attack someone, you had to cross borders and you know bring people. There was a lot of physical activity. Right now, you can you can conduct these things just by sitting at home. So it's a very different world. I'm glad that G7 are talking about it. I hope they work together. I hope we work together with, with all of them and with others because the level of connectivity is just higher than what we can protect globally until we actually know how to work with each other correctly. And it's yeah, not going to yeah. get fixed now by somebody doing one or two things. It's going to take a number of years, maybe decades, to actually get run done correctly, I think. And when you think about the level of connectivity and then you start to bring in what's happening with IoT, what's happening with peer-to-peer -peer and 5G, and the connectivity is exploding. It has been for years and it continues to with so many connected devices. How do you think about an overall sort of security protocol as this grows so much? How should companies be thinking about that? Yeah, so as a community of human beings living in different places, we have not come to a realization yet that anything we built and connect into this connected world is both value but also produces risk. Right. The level of attacks is much bigger than anything we're used to. So I think we need to sort of come to the realization and the conclusion that any and everything we build needs to understand mm -hmm. that it's connected and it needs to take into consideration you know, what it, it is protecting and what it can get access to that can hurt us. Yeah, I mean, I think about that in my own life now when I realize with all these connected devices, wait, you're bringing in another access point into your house. How do you think about that when you're <laughs> putting things in your house? What's your thought? It's a good point. And there is the immediate and there is not so immediate thinking. So the immediate is if you connect your door for example, which a lot of people now do, to, to the network. Somebody can open your door sitting in their house. That doesn't sound like fun. And, and so this is, this is even the immediate thinking. The not-so-immediate thinking is somebody can use your fridge mm -hmm. and everybody else's fridge to attack some other thing. Nobody's thinking of this. And the fridge companies clearly don't think of that. But they're all nodes on the same network. They're all connected to each other. There's no two networks. Mm -hmm. It's all one network. And if any group of nodes are available for an attacker to get a hold of, you know, you're going to see mm -hmm. amazing mm -hmm. things. So we are not protecting even from the first immediate things. As in, can someone, in fact, open your door over the Internet mm -hmm. sitting at their house? And, you know, it, it takes a lot of mm -hmm. thinking to make that correct. But certainly people are not thinking of the, of the bigger story. And now Salesforce says, you know, security is and trust is a number one value here at Salesforce and, and securing our customers' data is, is paramount to what we do. But we're, we're not in the consumer security business. How does Salesforce connect to some of these larger global issues that you're talking about? So Salesforce has access to a lot of customer data. You're absolutely correct. 
And if you look at everything that gets done in Salesforce, it's all centered around protecting customer data. It's actually one of the number one goals, just protecting customer data. And the growth of Salesforce is like exactly one-to-one corresponding to growth of customer data. And when that happens, it's not just the growth of the data, it's it's the nature of the data. There is more data, but there's also more sensitive data. There is more important data. So the focus at Salesforce on security is huge because it's, it's sort of a core part of the business. You're right. Trust is our number one value. And to me, as a security professional, trust means protecting customer data. And the notion is the more security-aware people in the world, the better the whole cybersecurity situation is going to be. It's going to take a worldwide activity, which obviously Salesforce is always part of, but we need a lot of collaborations. We need a lot of governments to, to kind of, even governments that don't exactly see eye to eye, we need these people to talk to each mm-hmm. other. And when you think about that for a whole organization, what should be top of mind for CIOs and CTOs right now? What are you hearing in the conversations that you're having with leaders of enterprise companies? What's top of mind for security right now? The fact that we have to protect our businesses, our organizations, our agencies from attacks that are yet to come is actually the number one issue. Because we do not know what the attackers that are going to come up with. There's a lot of machines and computers and processes and cloud services and everything connected to everything. And the adversaries are very smart at finding weaknesses. Finding a weakness, you know, in, in, in one computer, in a sea of computers, can actually yield to an issue that could eventually yield to a breach that is harmful. So the attacker has the edge. Right, The attacker needs to find an entry point Mm -hmm. and then follow it, while people who are protecting needs to protect Mm -hmm. the entire thing. So it's actually not a fair game as far as that goes. The attackers work Mm -hmm. with each other. They're actually extremely connected. They build on these tools. They can tell you and continue Mm -hmm. enhancing the tools. And the protection... You know, people who are protecting their own companies collaborate, but to a much less degree. So when when you're thinking top of mind, the top of mind is, can somebody utilize some weakness someplace and and launch an attack that I'm not aware of? And how many layers of defense and protection and detection do I need to build to, you know, optimistically prevent an attack, but at minimum detected early enough so it doesn't cause real harm. You know, we all know this industry, there's this new thing in in, in cybersecurity that we all call Mm -hmm. zero trust. And what it means is you have to assume that some bad person, some adversary found their way through and, and, and they are actually in the middle of a network that you care about and you want to minimize the impact Mm -hmm. of that. I mean, you've been in this role for, you know, your your whole career, really, in this defensive position. What does that feel like to be there all the time? I mean, uh, on one hand, it's kind of really fun because you're solving difficult problems, which is what, you know, in the technical world we strive for. We all want to find solutions to difficult problems. 
you know, every once in a while, you kind of wish that people will work together a little bit more to make this mm -hmm. to make the situation better. Every once in a while, you wish that the infrastructure was built in a somewhat different way that is mm -hmm. easier to protect. But you know, at the end of the day, it's you know, we play the cat and mouse game. Mm -hmm. We're good at it, and you know, you protect against these massive amount of attacks by building layers and layers of protection. It's well, I know this comes out of your love of cryptography and, and that, you know, that's your field of study. You know, I don't know a whole lot about it. I would love to hear some of the fun stuff that you've worked on or just tell me a little bit more about it as a field. And, and beyond security, how are you still involved with it right now? People did ask me, why did you get in cryptography? And my answer to that question is cryptography is the most beautiful use mm -hmm. of mathematics I've ever seen. It's just absolutely gorgeous mathematics. It's, you know, it changes with time. It's not a fixed thing. So it forces you to continue mm -hmm. to think and change. And you want to apply it in different ways so that you can protect important things. But it teaches you how to think differently. Everybody tells me, we need more security-enabled people. We don't have enough. The world does not have mm -hmm. enough. That is correct. Mm -hmm. and um, but cryptography as, as an example of a use of mathematics is, it just, you know, I, I do not know. I was extremely lucky, maybe, or whatever, but, but it's really awesome to think through well, it's been such an incredible, you know, uh, time of innovation uh, that you've contributed to and learned so much, and it's changed the world. There's no doubt about that. So, this has just been a wonderful opportunity to catch up and learn about your career and about security at Salesforce. So, thank you so much for joining today. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Michael. It's been great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. That was Tahir Elgamel, legendary cryptographer and Salesforce CTO of security. For more, we've got some great resources on Trailhead, our free learning platform to help companies and individuals of all levels develop security knowledge. Just go to trailhead.salesforce.com slash cybersecurity. That's trailhead.salesforce.com slash cybersecurity. And if you want to hear more Blazing Trails, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>